So tonight, more on the paramis. Um, the paramis are said to, one, carry us across to the other shore, and the other is that they are foremost in formulating the purpose of one's life. And I'm just going to go through again what these ten qualities are. And as I say each one, see if you can't really bring it to mind. You know, just get a felt sense of that quality. Generosity, dana. The, you know, the, the benevolent heart, the capacity to care for another's well-being and offer to sustain their well-being. Virtue, the capacity to live a life of non-harming, to live a life that engenders harmony, Renunciation, that of relinquishing or letting go of that which doesn't belong to us, or a practice of contentment. Wisdom, the capacity to know things as they are, to see things as they are. Energy, the perseverance or willingness of heart that sustains us on this journey of awakening. Patience, a forbearance, gentle forbearance, or tenacity that helps us to be steady in the face of challenges. Truthfulness, that of being honest, speaking in alignment with truth. Resolve or determination keeps us pointed in the right direction, allowing us to simply do the best we can, moment by moment. Loving kindness, the friendly heart, the gentle heart, the heart that is all-inclusive, Equanimity, the great poise, the poise that is balanced, unwavering, a type of balance that can hold it all, the joys and the sorrows, without being thrown about by it. These qualities can also be said to be the conduct of a Buddha. They're qualities that we can 
pay attention to in our lives, in our practice, that will both strengthen and help to support us on this journey. In the commentaries, they're described as one of the few reliable ways of measuring accomplishment. Um, You know, most of what we think of as accomplishment in our lives just simply erodes, withers with times. But these perfections, when developed, are said to be dependable and lasting, and they aid us in dealing with the vicissitudes of life. So tonight we will be exploring wisdom together. And just to say about these paramis that you know, it's not like one works in isolation without the others. That really, uh, they all support each other. And this is very easy to see with wisdom. You know, wisdom helps us to really understand with generosity the benefit of it, to know that in acts of generosity, there's really wholesome seeds that are being planted. And wisdom helps us on the ultimate level with generosity to know that ultimately there is no giver, no gift, and no receiver. Wisdom helps us with uh, virtue or ethical conduct to be able to make skillful choices that uh, will guide our actions of body, speech, and mind. And wisdom will help us to be able to discern how to use energy in a skillful way rather than a misguided way. Wisdom gives us strength to patience where, you know, in situations where we may feel wronged by others, that the wisdom just doesn't give over to anger, but allows the mind to turn towards what is wholesome. Wisdom helps us to strengthen the, the sense of resolve, you know, a sense of uh, steadfastness in, you know, just simply trying to do the best we can as a human being um, and doing the best we can to train this wild horse of a mind and to really stay resolute in that. And without wisdom, metta has no skillful means of expression. An example of this could be, you know, a mother loves her child, but if there's no wisdom, there's no capacity to let go. And so one can be um, broken in agony. But with wisdom we see that there's nothing to hang on to. And only by means of wisdom does equanimity develop. Equanimity is really a quality that comes from seeing clearly where, you know, uh, there comes, you know, what we often hear, uh, can hear in a negative context, a disenchantment, but I know I've heard from several of you where, you know, you're just so tired of biting at the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant that, you know, when, when you can just see experience as it is, you know, it's just 
so freeing. And there's a balance that comes in the mind when it's not going after all of the pleasant and unpleasant. But tonight we'll be looking at wisdom itself. And the characteristic of wisdom is that of penetrating the true nature of experience. You know, see, being able to see beneath the level of concept, ideas, views, beliefs, opinions. Um, where there's a direct and immediate knowing, an intuitive wisdom. There's a removal of ignorance that happens when we see clearly. The what has been mystifying us, uh, befuddling, confusing the mind, is seeing as it is in its nature. This dispels all of the confusion. It leaves us with a direct and an immediate relationship to life, to this body and mind where there can be a compassionate response that's not based in greed, hatred, and delusion. We get glimmers of clarity in our practice at times, moments where we have some kind of uh uh-huh experience, just seeing something in a new way, um... And, you know, it can be quite simple when it happens. You know, that there might be a moment where desire arises in the mind. And rather than being caught in the struggle with the desire, there's just, you know, seeing, the wanting. And it's not taken personally. There's no entanglement. There can be moments of complete simplicity, in a moment of hearing, when there's just hearing. Now, think to your day and how many times we hear sound and there's you know, an endless story that goes on about what's being heard. But then there's just moments where you know, a bird chirps and it's hearing. A board creaks and it's hearing. Just very simple moments There's something very restful in these moments. I remember, you know, my first long retreat and being in a lot of struggle and, you know, feeling like just endless confusion and what am I doing? And And then there'd be a moment of seeing, of hearing, just in its complete simplicity. The mind was at peace. There's a sense of completeness in these moments. Things are just as they are. But usually, you know, our conceptual mind, so many filters that things go through, so many ideas. Um, 
I'd like to share a story uh, that is about a woman who came to a day-long retreat. And it was just, you know, her seeing how her perceptions were totally coloring her experience. So I had taught this day long, and at the end of the, the day, she came up to me. And she expressed that she'd been quite disappointed because she had come to this day expecting another teacher. That a few years before, she had been at this day long, and uh, she really appreciated the teacher, and then, you know, hadn't didn't know who they were later, and and then inquired in the community, it was in New York City, about the person and described the person. And whoever she spoke with thought it was me. So she came to the day, and then, you know, she was telling me she was, she enjoyed the day, but, you know, she had to get over a bit. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I know teachers, maybe I can figure out who she had been practicing with. And so she described the person, she said, Well, she was about your height, but she had a shaved head. She taught at the Tibet house, and there was just this strong sense of reverence. And, you know, here I was. I was teaching at, it was in an old school, and it was in a gym, and there was all these colorful paintings around. And, you know, I'm sitting up there, and I look like the all-American girl. So, But when she described this other person, I went, oh, that's me. <laughs> it had been just after I had ordained as a nun, you know, and had been in a different setting. And she just, you know, w- when I said, oh, that's me, she, she really saw how her perceptions were coloring her experience. And this is what we do. But our practice, you know, it wakes us up out of that, takes us to a whole nother level of seeing. And, you know, it, we see it in really little ways, like, you know, just noticing the difference between concept of pain and sensations of pressure, tightness, tingling. You know, you know when it's pain, it's my pain. And there's can be a whole image around it. Um, and when it's just the sensations, you know, are you the tingling? Are you the heat? It's just what's there. It's just what's being known. We, you know, on an emotional level, can have so many thoughts about any emotion that comes and just building our identity out of this. What about when it's just sadness? Nobody's sadness. It's just sadness being known. Or it's just joy being known. Frustration being known. Then it's a miracle. Known by who? (laughs) Known by what? I don't know why we always think we're going to lose so much when we step out of the story. And yet, we gain it all. So, Vipassana, insight meditation 
it's said to be a wisdom practice. It's really, uh, that is what drew me to this practice. I mean, actually I can't say that for sure because I was initially drawn to Vipassana insight meditation and then I went on the bhakti path and, um, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't on that path with a lot of wisdom. That doesn't mean it's not possible. But, you know, I was just like the exhilaration of heart, devotion. You know, it was, I was riding these waves. And, and I kept, you know, I would fly. I feel like I was just flying. And then I'd come crashing down. And this happened over and over. And then I remember so clearly these words ringing in my brain. Hmm, not a lot of wisdom here. <laughs> And then I remembered where I had begun, which was with Vipassana meditation. So it really inspired me to, um, to apply, to really take to heart this practice, find a little balance. And, you know, it's... <clears throat> we've probably all heard you know, that... that this denotes the three characteristics, the scene of anicca, impermanence, dukkha, um, the unsatisfactory nature of experience, of changing experience, and anatta, the impersonal or insubstantial nature. And, you know, this is what we see into over and over again. Uh, and it just helps to erode, you know, the, the clinging, the attachment, the identification that's there. You know, when we see change, moment after moment after moment after moment, you know, you get start to get the message, no point in hanging on. <laughs> and you begin to see, wow, I'm trying, you know, I'm, I've really been trying to, you know, get something that, hang on to something that is impossible. And that's not a personal failing, that you can't do it. But we... You know, uh, when we don't understand it, you know, trying so hard to get everything right, yeah, perfect, and then it all changes and, well, you know, it's just the way things are. Impermanence, you know, we're very selective in our understanding of it. We're fine when it's our headache that disappears, our back pain. You know, that's really okay. But when it's my calm, my peace, when it's my body, you know, then no, it's not okay anymore. You know, we don't live our lives from the depths of understanding this truth. But that's why we pay attention. Because we see nothing is exempt from this. You know, the finest states of concentration, not exempt. Our relationships, they're not exempt. They're all subject to change. I love this poem that a a yogi once wrote about impermanence. Like snow-covered boulders assaulted by crashing waves, I, too, find my seat. Solid and certain, I open to the white peaks of experience. Nowhere to go. I sit absorbing all that is and might be. Without reservation, the wild wind throws itself against my will, and I surrender. 
we surrender to the way things are. This truth of impermanence. And it's not, to our surprise, bad news. (laughs) The surrendering allows the clarity, the peace, the understanding. We're not trying to make the impossible happen. Seeing into the three characteristics, we see into dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of experience. Now we, as we pay attention with mindfulness, we just see all these desires, all these cravings, you know, all these promises of happiness, so empty. And it too is not a personal failing. They can't bring that promise of happiness. They can bring fleeting pleasure, and it's not to deny that, and it's not to turn away from that, but it's not to define self by these fleeting experiences and the grasping at the promise of happiness within them. in seeing into the unsatisfactoriness, there's the seeing that in the human life or a life of any living being, that there are unpleasant circumstances, unpleasant experience. But it's about how we relate here Can this be the way things are? That all things that are born are subject to decay. Through the practice we explore where there is pain, where there is grasping, hanging on. And we let this inform the mind. We, if we pay attention, we see it's the grasping itself. It's the hanging on to and identifying with that causes the pain, the suffering. I'd like to share a teaching from Kahil Gabran in the Prophet. And a woman said, Tell us of pain. And he said, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses understanding. Even as the stone of the fruit must break that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know your pain. And could you keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of life? your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy, and you would accept the seasons of your heart 
even as have always accepted the seasons that pass over your fields, and you watch with serenity through the winters of your grief. Pain, the breaking of the shell that encloses understanding. Do we look at our pain in this way? There's such a big shift in our lives when we alter our habits to be from that of denying, pushing away, suppressing pain, to taking an interest, to bringing a caring attention. What's happening here? What's going on? And really listening to see. In this way, our pain can instruct us, can help us to see more clearly. The exploration of anatta, the impersonal, insubstantial nature of experience. Uh, It's a fun one. (laughs) And so, you know, there's been, I mean, the idea of it can be totally threatening. You know, the ego can feel like it's about to be unemployed. (laughs) The mind rebels, the rational mind goes crazy. And um, we get in a tailspin. But for me, it's been fun, you know, when we treat in life to just watch how conditions come together and you can have an idea about what's going to happen, but you get there and then the conditions are all different and something totally different happens. You know, um, examples. <sighs> you know, you're in your room and you're going to go for a shower and you have your favorite shower stall. <laughs> and, you know, you're already set, hyped, you, know, you go in, you get there and you can't go in that one. And so that can affect your mind state. Oh, that stupid person, what are they doing? Don't they know it's my time? You know, it, the little ways, all coming to the forced refuge. Okay, so you arrive in a certain state of mind, you step into the building, I mean, probably even coming up the driveway, you know, what does it say, something about in silence? Um, and it has an effect. And then, you know, you're, you're coming and you've got all this momentum behind you and you start walking in the building and it's like, you know, suddenly, ooh, slow down here. Everyone's moving at a different pace. It has an effect. You can come into the hall and it's like, ooh, you know, if you stepped into a bar, you'd have a different experience. You know, so it affects us. And, it's, you know, we're so subject to the weather. I mean, you know, a rainy, cloudy day, it can have a strong effect. Bright sunshine, you know. Um, uh, the people that we're practicing with, you know, everyone's still and quiet. And, you know, that can either drive you to total torment, you wish they'd do something, or, you know, it just takes you into stillness yourself. That 
just all of these conditions have an effect. And, you know, we can't hang on to being a certain way. Have you ever... Oh, this happens a lot at the end of retreat. You know, maybe it was the person you had a lot of anger towards. And then, you know, it probably won't happen here because we all leave at different times, but, you know, another retreat somewhere else. At the end of the retreat, that person comes up to you and um, they look at you and they smile. And all, you know, you were going to put them in their place. But you see their smile, and it's gone. It's evaporated. You know, we just, we just see that it's so conditioned. I love being in nature for the same reason. You know, being in the desert, it, it's so obvious that, you know, you have a cave, you know, sandstone cave wall, and there's a crack in it. And that crack gets drips of water. And so there's a beautiful flower. And everywhere else is dry and barren. You know, it's like conditions just come together and you get certain results. And it's not really very controllable. You know, all of your experiences today, who are you going to say you are? You know, it's just so changing and so interwoven. And it's fun to see that. And, you know, it, just the seeing of it in the little ways, it helps to, for me, it has very much helped to erode this, you know, solid sense of there being, you know, I, me, mine, me, ocean, this is me, who I am. You know, nah, you can't hang on to it. And you can't stop it from being affected. It's just the way of things. So these Three characteristics, they are said to be the gateways to liberation. And I'd like to share a teaching from uh, a German-born Theravadan monk. His name was Nyanapanakatera. This is about the three characteristics. Ignoring or distorting the three basic facts ultimately leads only to frustration, disappointment, and despair. But if we learn to see through deceptive appearances and discern the three characteristics, this will yield immense benefits, both in our daily life and in our spiritual striving. On the mundane level, the clear comprehension of impermanence, suffering, and non-self will bring us a saner outlook on life. I think that's a good thing. (laughs) It will free us from unrealistic expectations, bestow a courageous acceptance of suffering and failure, and protect us against the lure of the deluded assumptions and beliefs. In our quest for the supermundane comprehension of the three characteristics will be indispensable. The meditative experience of all phenomena as inseparable from the three marks will loosen and finally cut the bonds binding us to an existence falsely imagined to be lasting, pleasurable, and substantive. With growing clarity, all things internal and external will be seen in their true nature as constantly changing, as bound up with suffering, and as insubstantial, without an eternal soul or abiding essence. By seeing thus, detachment will grow bringing greater freedom from egotistic clinging and culminating in nibbana, mind's final liberation.
from suffering. You know, these characteristics, they're helpful you know, on the most super mundane level, that of complete awakening. And they're also helpful in establishing a healthy relationship with mind, body, living in this world. There's said to be three levels of wisdom. The first is suttamaya, panya, which gets where we get information. Uh, we, you know, we hear the teachings, um, you know, words from our teachers. It's that gathering or collecting of information that will guide our practice. You know, that as we sit here, we see that there's information that we received somewhere along the line that is working in the background. You know, that helps us to make skillful choices. Um, And so, you know, it becomes helpful if that is good information. Because otherwise we can really be um, further confused. Um, The second type of wisdom is that of chitta. Maya, Panya. And that's where we actually apply, you know, and we apply with an intelligence. We apply the teachings, the skillful means we hear about, but, and we pay attention in our own experience. You know, uh, it's natural that as we practice, as we live, we make mistakes, but with that intelligence, we learn from them. And so it's not the same as, you know, just habitually doing things. That we're, we're applying the information with intelligence. And I've learned that as a teacher, sometimes to say that, that's scary for some of us. Actually, I should say I learned it as a yogi, <laughs> where we can think we don't have the capacity. You know, that... that uh, there's a level of intelligence here that um, we just don't have. And so I'd like to share with you a story that I found, I don't know, it just touched me so much when I first read it. It's from um, the book about Deepama's life. Deepama was one of the great beings who blessed uh, some of the teachers here, IMS, with her presence. She came here a few times. And... um, you know, said to be a very realized woman, and just you know, this very tiny Bengali woman, whom was a complete dynamo, and lived a very ordinary life in many ways. You know, lived as a householder and taught people like us who are on the householder path. And so, this story um, is told by Jack Angler. And it's about this woman that he met in uh, when he was visiting Deepama in Calcutta. So he says, When I was doing my research in Calcutta, Deepama brought her neighbor to me, a 65-year-old woman whose name was Madhuri Lata. She had raised her family, her children were gone, and unlike most Indian families, she was alone with her husband, with no extended family living in the same household. Her husband had said to her, You have nothing to do now. This aunt of yours, Deepama, teaches this meditation practice. Why don't you talk with her? It'll give you something to do. 
Madhuri, who was mildly retarded, went to Deepama, and Deepama gave her the basic instructions to place her attention on the rise and fall of the abdomen with each inhalation and each exhalation, and to note to herself, rising, falling, rising, falling. Madhuri said, okay, and she started to go home. She went down four flights of stairs and across the alley to her apartment. She didn't get halfway down the stairs before she forgot the instructions. So back she went. What was I supposed to do, she asked. Rising, falling, rising, falling, said Deepama. Oh yes, that's right. Four times Madhuri forgot the instructions and had to come back. Deepama was very patient with her. It took Madhuri almost a year to understand the basic instructions. But once she got them, she was like a tiger. Before she began to practice, Madhuri was bent over at a 90-degree angle with arthritis, rheumatism, and intestinal problems. When I met her, after her enlightenment experience, she walked with a straight back, no more intestinal problems. She was the simplest, sweetest, gentlest woman. And after she told me her enlightenment story, she said, all this time I've wanted to tell someone about this wonderful thing that happened to me, and I've never been able to share this before, this most precious thing in my life. So not to feel threatened by wisdom that we don't have. The third level of wisdom is that of bhavanamaya, panya. And this is the wisdom that's not bound by the intellectual capacity, but comes from our own direct experience. The initial information does play an important role. It gives a context. It can you know, give helpful information. This, you know, a simple way of seeing this is just on the level of the hindrances. If you come to practice and you've never heard about the hindrances, you get sleepy and you think, I should go have a nap. You get restless and you think, I should go and do something else. You know, that's how we often respond in life. Oh, this is this way, this is what I do. But if we have a context... Some, you know, we just know that these are common experiences that happen in meditation, that they aren't a flaw, they aren't a fault, but that they arise and that they're skillful means of working with, that they are, can, you know, be held entirely within the realm of practice. We will have a very different relationship. You know, we won't be run by these states. You know, we get a context for suffering that... It's not that we want to create more suffering in our life, but where there's pain, we can look and see what's happening. It will help us in those moments. So, you know, because before that, you know, something hurts, you change, you move. It's, you know, you, you, you just move away from that which is creating the pain, never realizing that it's how the mind is relating. You know, so we blame people in our lives. We get rid of people when, we, you know, they don't behave the way we want them to. But a very different relationship when there's a context, a way of looking. And then applying what we hear 
And it takes us through to the third level, that of intuitive wisdom, innate wisdom. Sometimes we might use information by way of helping us to find some balance that, you know, we're maybe um, really struggling with loss and feeling quite broken by it. You know, I know at times, for me, just to remember, all conditioned things are of the nature to change. It's like, oh, it gives a little bit of space to it, where it's not taken so personally, this loss, where, um, you know, it's just, it, it turns the mind in the direction of truth, even though it's calling on borrowed understanding, but it's turning the mind to where it can know it directly. With reflections like that, one has to be careful um, that one isn't using it to cut one, cut off some experience because one doesn't want it. Um, one example of that, so, you know, like my using the description, everything changes. Uh, there has been times in my own life where, um, you know, there's some inability to be with loss, and then a very curt voice will say, Ugh, everything changes. But it's a way of trying to dismiss, you know, trying to get away from that which is uncomfortable rather than a way of trying to shift the mind to see the truth of that. So they have a very different feeling tone. And one, one has to watch how one uses information. I mean, I think that's what it you know, comes down to. And that we use it in a way that turns the mind towards truth. And then there's also the piece where we, you know, we can think we know something. And we, if we think we know something, it keeps us from touching into the intuitive understanding. And, you know, it's just a fabric. it's a concept. It's not, it's not grounded in our own understanding. And it really is unhelpful. Um, it, can, it takes the vitality out of life, out of this exploration, out of this journey. And so it's to watch with information that it's used in a helpful, skillful way that directs us towards this third level, the intuitive understanding. I'd like to share just a a few of the ways in the commentaries that they talk about supporting the unfolding of wisdom. First is pretty obvious, that of sila, virtue, abstaining from harmful actions. We've all been learning on retreat, um, if we didn't already know it, that when we do harmful things, it really agitates the mind. We get confused, can't see clearly, live in regret, worry, anxiety. Um, and that, you know, that there's just much more ease and peace in the minds if our actions are wholesome, helpful. It's also helpful to the unfolding of wisdom to have an inquiring disposition no, to want to know truth for ourselves. This is really helpful. 
them not to be satisfied with the book learning, which can be helpful, but we just, you know, not to be satisfied. Really want to see for ourselves, to know and to deeply understand. And with that, you know, we engage with intelligence. It's also said to be helpful to listen and contemplate the teachings. You know, that to, to take them in. Sometimes um, I will use just a few lines from a sutta, you know, one of the, te- the, the teachings that the Buddha gave, and just really look in my own experience. How does this relate? Just investigating. And the contemplating, it's like not the trying to figure out, but for me it's always this sense of listening deeply. Allowing the words to reverberate. It's also said to be helpful um, in the supporting of wisdom to associate with the wise, those people who will inspire us, guide us, and to disassociate with fools, (laughs) those people that we get led astray by. You know, peer pressure, it's challenging. It's so easy to fall into old habits. You know, it's not not to say that they're the fools, but we're the fools because we can't, we don't have the strength to really um, work against our habits when when we're around others whom are just living in that way. The strengthening of concentration supports wisdom, and concentration being that stability of mind, you know, that can either come through the absorption concentration. where we keep bringing the mind back to one focus or through paying attention to the changing nature of experience moment by moment. And all of this is supported by wise attention. Really paying attention to what's happening in our experience. I'd like to mention some of the obstacles to wisdom. Idleness. I don't know about you, but when I was young, particularly, moments of idleness, you know, times of great idleness. And it just became a festering cave of negative emotions. (laughs) You know, it was a breeding ground for negativity, where there is no... No volition in the mind, no willingness of heart. Um, and, you know, on retreat, times of idleness, they, they slip in. You know, when, where's that, there's that lack of willingness to be present. One of my greatest areas was at, at night, um, getting into bed and just before falling asleep. And just, you know, taking the foot off the mindfulness um, accelerator, and wow, the thoughts that would come in, and you know, I'd be spun out in no time. Or waking up in the morning, and you know, just not quite ready to meet the day, and and before you know it, just all kinds of hindrances have come in. After a meal, you know, for whatever reason, you know. Uh, 
there could just be periods where, oh, that's done. You know, it could be a great relief. It was such an activity of eating a meal, a great relief, and just moved into this idleness. And before you know it, it was a swamp. So, you know, just noticing where the swamp is in the day and seeing if there's some idleness there or lack of willingness. It's also said an obstacle to wisdom to have an indecisive nature. We find we're unable to commit and continually pulling back, you know, what if? And this indecisive nature in practice, you know, where we can't settle on what practice to do. You know, metta, uh, absorption practice, open awareness, um, you know, just one object, oh, back to no compassion. And, you know, it's like, you know, mind just, it's like, can't settle. Um, Very indecisive. You know, it's better to just pick one. Just do it. doesn't matter which one. Just do it. They're all helpful. The lack of desire for knowledge. Complacency. That feeling. Doesn't matter. Resignation. We get moments of it. Times in the day where there's just complacency. Where there's lack of inquiry. You know, it hurts. Well, it's okay, it'll pass at some point. But, you know, there's a disconnection. What can I do till it passes? You know, how can I keep myself occupied so I don't have to see this? <laughs> Another one is the wrong opinion of oneself. I wonder how many people here could put up their hands for that. <laughs> and, you know, that, that goes either way, where we just see ourselves as the worst yogi, you know, our... Our suffering is just in a whole nother league. It's not possible to overcome. Or we have this really inflated sense of what a great yogi we are, how wonderful we are, how enlightened we are. Um, But it's all based on a wrong view, (laughs) wrong view of self. And primary to the obstacles to wisdom are the hindrances and not recognizing them. You know, not seeing desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. And you know, the Buddha spoke about the hindrances as being the makers of blindness, causing lack of vision, causing lack of knowledge, detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, and leading away from nibbana. So... They're only obstacles when they're unrecognized. But that's the mystery of these hindrances. It's how they slip in under the radar screen. How they color the vision without our detecting them. And, you know, any time of struggle, just check. One of the hindrances there, not being seen. We heighten our sensitivity to the various forms. They take so many forms. Come, we come one at a time or all together. But we just, you know, with mindfulness, with wise attention, turn these obstacles to wisdom into the grounds for liberation. Just by bringing into awareness.
So the exploration of wisdom, seeing things as they are in their nature, happens through deep listening, receptivity, just letting things be. And this means the anger, the frustration, the disappointment, letting it be as it is in its nature, its nature which does not belong to you, which does not define you. It's nature which is subject to impermanence, is part of a vast web of conditions. Discovering the freedom that comes when we're not living life from a conflicted place, not trying to make things be a certain way. Discovering the sense of relaxation when there isn't this continual struggle. And it's a practice because we get caught over and over again but playing with letting life practice be simple seeing if we can turn up to experience in its simplicity Just this, as it is, whatever it is, can we be, no, rest in, when there's the struggle looking, inquiring, what's being clung to, what's being identified with, a thought, a feeling, an image, is it who you are? such a play and it's all right here the the Dhamma it's just revealing itself moment after moment 
when we have the eyes to see. As wisdom strengthens, it brings this healthy relationship with life. Brings the responsiveness that comes from compassion. Let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know things just as they are. Closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.